finally, we're going to answer that ultimate of questions. Who's been eating all of my lettuces and who's left all those mace marks in the walls? I'm John and this is Hannah. Hi. And we're going to be talking about the flail snail. Okay, so as per our Twitter poll, today we're going to be talking about the flail snail. Apologies, this episode's a little bit late, but even with promises of lettuce and adventurers to smash, it's kind of hard to get the little fellas moving. So, first of all, we're going to have a look at the origins of the flail snail as it appeared in the first edition Fiend Folio, which was one of the sort of flagship products from tsr uk back in the day so love what does the flail snail look like in the fiend folio so it's a very rare monster it has four to six hit dice okay it's eight feet tall at the top of its shell Mm -hmm. and it has one tentacle for each hit dice that it has and you effectively treat those as like individual creatures while it's fighting so is it like you know like with the heads of a hydra or whatever yeah you that have to, like, kind of an idea separately. you have to kill all of the heads okay and each head is one of those hit dice yeah each strikes for 1d8 damage that's pretty hefty it especially really if you're low level immune to fire normal or magical and poison hypersensitive to bright light and thus is always encountered at night or underground I suppose that makes sense because you know, your normal snails, although they're obviously about during the day, it tends to be like the early morning, you know, when it's just sort of getting light and it's still a bit damp and whatever that you come across them. Highly coloured shell acts as a robe of scintillating colours, which, when it's attacked by magic, causes the spells to malfunction. Uh, so 40% chance of it malfunctioning, 30% of it functioning normally, 20 of it failing to work at all. reflected back onto the person that cast it Uh, if spell malfunctions its effects will alter totally down to the discretion of the referee referee not dungeon master Uh, well you know I mean it's back in the early days of (laughs) D&D where everything was a bit more flexible and certainly I, I know that you tend to find in these earlier products the there's more of an emphasis on like oh just just make some more deal with it how you want whereas certainly in later like second ad and and first ad and things started to get codified like a little bit more mm-hmm. shell weighs 250 pounds retains magical properties for one to six months after its occupant's death and can be sold for as much as five thousand gold pieces <whistles> and that's all there is to say on it pretty much okay so I've been having a hunt around and it seems that the, the Flail Snail's first appearance in Second Ed AD&D was in Monstrous Compendium 5, a Greyhawk Adventures Monstrous Compendium. And if you're not familiar with the Monstrous Compendium, these were like the little tiny books you used to get that were like little add-ons to like give you some extra monsters. Loads of them got organised into like the later sort of like monster manuals and stuff like that. But the flail snail is a subset of snail in here you know because they like to group similar Mm -hmm. things together which is absolutely fine it describes them as silicon based gastropods distantly related to ordinary garden snails i'm guessing it's very distantly related um 
their shells are average eight feet high at the crown and are masses of neon blues, red. So very, very similar, so bright colored. They've got the tentacles, well, like the normal head of a snail would be, each ending in a 10 pound mass of hardened flesh covered with knobs. <laughs> so there's your sort of flails as far as they go. As previous, a hit by a single tentacle causes 1d8 points of damage and could smash a one inch thick piece of wood, which is oddly specific, but there you go. A four tentacle snail makes four attacks, a three tentacle snail makes three attacks, so on and so forth. And that obviously relates to the hit dice, mm-hmm. as it did in the Fiend Folio, and you treat each tentacle as a separate creature again. When a tentacle is reduced to zero points, it's useless. Flower snails attack until all of their tentacles are dead. Once this happens, the monster withdraws into its shell and dies 1d3 turns later. The body has hit points equal to the combined total of all the tentacles, but it's nearly impossible to attack because it's all inside the shell, obviously. Okay, so flower snails are still protected against magic by their colourful shell. Um, it doesn't specifically give the name of the magic item that it's riffing off here, as it did in the Fiend Folio, but we've got a similar thing, you know, a chance of malfunction, a chance of it functioning normally, a chance of it failing or rebounding on the person who cast a spell at it. We also get here, I don't know if it mentioned that in the Fiend Folio, they're immune to fire and poison. Yep. And again, it mentions that they shun bright light. Now, as is often the way when they're sort of giving these one-page sort of spreads mm-hmm. in AD&D, we get a bit more expansive sort of habitat, society, and ecology mm-hmm. sort of section. And we're told that they live peaceful lives, crawling up and down dungeons and cavern corridors. Normally quiet, they aggressively defend themselves, chasing attackers until they withdraw from the sensory range of the flower snail, which is like 20 feet. Apparently, they live off lichen and algae growing on dungeon floors. Glands in their mouths secrete a substance that loosens the plants, and they then scrape them up and eat them. Females give birth to 1d3 young. They remain with the mother for two years, and their sort of their flails reach a weight of five pounds. Flower snails mature at age four and live up to 20 years. They're described as peaceful beasts, but as we as we've said earlier, they're quite aggressive when it comes to defending themselves from perceived threats. One thing which we mentioned in other monster episodes, which I quite like here, is obviously it said in the Fiend's Folio that the, the shell retains a certain level of magic for mm-hmm. a period of time after they die. Here we get a little bit more specifics about that. It tells us that a skilled armourer can fashion one to two plus two shields from a single shell. The shields affect spells, as did the original shells, you know, rebounding them, etc., until the magic fades, which takes 1d6 months. After the magic fades, it's still a plus two shield, but it counts as being non-magical. In addition, bizarrely, freshly ground snail shell is needed to create the robe of scintillating colours. So it's nice that they've sort of gone back to mm-hmm. what they referenced in the Fiend Folio and given a bit of a reason for it. One robe can be made from a single shell, and the shells will sell for a princely 5,000 gold pieces on the open market. Although, what the open market is for, like, enchanted snail shells, I, I don't know, wizard market, I suppose. One thing in that bit that stood out to me, because I've gone and watched a couple of videos about actual snails, yeah, is that it says that there are females of them. Implying that there are also males of them. Yeah, which I can't... Snails are entirely hermaphroditic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hazard a guess. I mean, I don't know about this, so, so don't like... <laughs> I'm sh- guessing don't... the people at Wizards didn't know that. Well, it wasn't Wizards, then it was TSR, wasn't it? But don't, don't, don't shoot me internet people, but I'm guessing they probably didn't do like, that heavy research when they were like doing the flail snail. I'm pretty sure it probably just started off as like a random... <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you, I, I don't know this for sure, I'm just guessing, but you can imagine the people who worked on the original Fiend Folio, they're like, we've got X number of pages to fill with monsters. And they get to a point where they're like, oh, we're struggling a bit. We've like, we've like done all these really like creative monsters, like the wells running a bit dry. You know, when you get to the point where you're like, oh yeah, how about a snail that's got like flails <laughs> built into its like head? It, you can imagine that they they didn't really go great into the sort of like the research for it, and I think once it was established, previous sort of editions have just sort of been riffing <laughs> on that. Now I did attempt to see if I could locate it in third edition or fourth edition, but unfortunately I couldn't. Certainly not amongst my collection of books. But if anyone out there knows different and wants to holler at us about the flower snail in either third edition or fourth edition, you can leave us a voicemail, drop us an email. That'll be absolutely cracking. So what's it like in 5th Ed then? Okay, well, bizarrely enough, the Flail Snail is in the one of the 5th Ed books, Volo's Guide to Monsters. So it seems odd that such a wacky creature should be like straight, straight sort of back in the cut and thrust of it because they've not published a load of books for 5th edition. Their publishing schedule for like Wizards is like a lot slower. They're sort of drip feeding it a little. So it seems odd that they've sort of gone for one of these bizarre monsters. But we get a slight sort of tweaking of it in 5th edition since it's described as a creature of elemental earth. And there was no there was no hint of a connection to the elemental plane of earth previously. It was just some freaky ass gastropod with flowers on its head. But as we've said, there seems to be a move sort of later on in Dindy to have everything linked to a deity or some other weird plane of existence or something like that. So it's an elemental plane of earth creature. Um, it has a multi-hued shell again, although it's not really the, the hues aren't described as much as they were previously. Um, it seems to be non-hostile. However, if it perceives a threat, it unleashes a flash of scintillating light and then attacks with mace-like tentacles. So in this, the shell has effectively become a weapon through which they can like project a beam of light towards people, sort of dazzling them. Give it doesn't really do any harm, but it gives it can give them a disadvantage because they're dazzled. Then obviously the snail wades in with its like flails and just sort of lays about them we've got a little bit here called trail of treasure where it says left undisturbed a flail snail moves slowly along the ground consuming everything on the surface rocks sand soil whatever stopping to relish crystal growths and other large mineral deposits it leaves behind a shimmering trail that quickly solidifies into a thin layer of a nearly transparent substance inedible to the snail this glassy residue can be harvested and cut to form window panes of varying clearness. It can also be heated and spun into glass objects of other sort. Now, you can imagine that would actually be pretty valuable in like your typical sort of medieval world, because obviously like reliable technology for making glass mm-hmm. didn't turn up until sort of like fairly late on, hence why you only get like small windows, even for like very rich people. And yeah, okay, D is not an exact representation of a medieval world obviously you've got magic you've got wizards and you've got stuff like that and technology that never really existed in like the medieval times but 
I think it's quite interesting that like it, it potentially has quite a valuable sort of um, product. It also explains how all those fantasy taverns can keep affording to replace the windows when you keep throwing dwarfs through them. It does raise, yeah. I mean, it does raise an interesting point as well. I mean, if you let's say if you let's say you find an abandoned dungeon with like a, a flower snail or two like wandering around in it, if you just profit minded, you're probably there to just let them do their thing. Let them keep wandering around the dungeon eating the moss and whatever. They're not doing anyone any harm. Stay clear of them. And every couple of months, you go in, scrape up this glass, take it to like your glass blower you've like hooked up with or whatever, and be like, oh, here you go, here's some glass. And you could make a tidy profit like that if you wanted to. We get a little box out as well about using the snail shell. Um, it's described as weighing about 250 pounds. It still sells for 5,000 gold pieces. So obviously inflation's not taken a hold of that yet in the D&D world. Um, many hunters seek the shell for its anti-magic properties. A skilled armourer can make three shields now from one shell instead of the two it used to be. So maybe inflation has got a hold of it. <laughs> for one month, each shield gives its wearer the snail's anti-magic shell trait. When the shield's magic dies, it leaves behind an exotic shield that is the perfect item from which to make a spell guard shield. The shield can also the shell can also be used to make the robe of scintillating colours. The shell is ground and added to dye while the garment's being fashioned. So pretty similar to the second ad version of it. Although they only last one month instead of up to six. Yeah. Yeah. So if we look at the actual stats of the, the flail snail. In this, the, it has the anti-magic shell, which gives it advantage on saving throws against spells. Any creature making a spell attack against it has disadvantage. In addition, if you if the snail succeeds in its save, you get to roll a d6. One to two, the spell fails or has no effect. If the spell targets only the snail, it has no effect on the snail and is reflected back at the caster. Three to four is no additional effect. Five to six the shell converts some of the energy into a burst of destructive force and sends out this wave of sort of energy that could harm anyone nearby to the to the snail so they've obviously like adapted the way the the shell works it's a little bit different but it's still got that random thing it's still bouncing off magic left right and center so thematically it's similar even though the actual mechanics have altered a bit and they've they've trimmed it down from being like percentage chances to just like a d6 roll well, we get a description of the flail tentacles, although in this we don't get the different hit dice versions. We're just told that the flail snail's got five flail tentacles, that's it. Whenever the snail takes ten damage or more on a single turn, one of the tentacles dies. If even one tentacle remains, it regrows all dead ones within 1d4 days. So that's a bit of a departure from the previous one, because previously if you chopped off all the, the flails, it just withdrew into the shell and it died after like d3 days or whatever it was. Whereas in this, it's just going to withdraw into its shell, eventually regrow them, and it's good as new, pretty much. Although it does say here, um, if all its tentacles die, this snail retracts into its shell, gaining total cover, and begins wailing. A sound that can be heard for 600 feet, stopping only when it dies, 5d6 minutes later. So you can still kill it by lopping off all the tentacles, but if even one's left, it'll regenerate. The wailing thing, that was something that was mentioned in both of the others, although I don't know whether we actually read it out on either of them. Although I notice on this one, it doesn't say that it's likely to draw in a wandering monster. 
No, it just... Whereas on the first ed, it definitely did, and I think it did on the second. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it does seem to me, and, and again, I might be wrong, it's just my impression, so so don't, don't be hating on me for this internet, but... I do feel having like read the fifth edition books that like maybe like the sort of wandering the random wandering monsters maybe like fallen out of favour a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in here, you know, it just sort of it tells you that this noise can be heard for like up to six hundred feet. So if you're using wandering monsters, then obviously yeah, if a monster's within six hundred feet, it's going to hear that there's something going on. Whereas in the previous sort of editions it sort of explicitly told you, like, oh, this is going to affect the chance of wandering monster encounters and stuff like that. And then we've already talked about the the scintillating shell and the sort of, like, the beam it can send out. Obviously, it gets multi-attack. It can attack with all of its different flail tentacles. In this, instead of doing D8, they do 1D6 plus 3. So a slightly different dice mechanic, but, you know, similar, similar sorts of damage. It's bludgeoning damage. And then when it withdraws into its shell, it gains a plus four bonus to AC until it emerges. And it can emerge as a bonus action, so we can sort of just like pop out of its shell and start laying about somebody. So that's the flannel snail in fifth edition. So should we talk about some ways in which you could potentially use it in your game? Well, first up, you've smashed the window at the Fantasy Tavern. Yeah. And you're going to get barred if you don't replace it. However, the barman happens to know that there's a flail snail in an abandoned old dungeon. Yeah. Well, we, we spoke a bit about it earlier. Let's see, you can make yourself a tidy profit, like getting the glass. And I quite like That's probably my favourite bit about the, the sort of fifth edition version is that sort of like little addition to it. And I think some, I don't really tend to run fifth edition. I run like older sort of dip versions of D&D. I think if I was going to use a flail snail in a game, I probably would port that in from 5th edition which normally I don't really find a great deal in 5th edition monsters that I think adds a lot to it normally they're sort of tied into like the elemental planes like this is or demons or gods and that doesn't bother me but I really do like the sort of glass bit here yeah when we were first looking at it I noticed that this is one of the few times where the 5th ed's actually got more detail than the 1st ed yeah on like things you can do with this creature once it's dead but the um second ed it's more again but it's kind of different more yeah where they've chosen to focus yeah i mean i think for me again like what like we were saying earlier where it seemed like the flower snail was like a bit of a sort of joke monster like a bit of a filler monster mm-hmm. in the fiend folio I think when they're sort of like they're bringing it back in fifth edition, they've obviously had to think like, oh, we know it's a joke monster. It's always going to be a bit of a joke monster, but how can we make it like a bit more of an interesting thing to bring into a game? Which I think they've tried to do by expanding on it, which is great. Something else that occurred to me when we first started looking at this, yeah, is that there's almost a class of D and D monsters that seem to be there. For the kids who like to play with bugs. Oh, yeah. To get a creepy crawly from their garden and drop it onto a table of miniatures and watch everybody else at the table freak out. And the flail snail sort of strikes me as like the one creature that I'd be quite happy to do that with myself because I quite like snails and it wouldn't upset the snail too much. And it would probably be quite cool to have it there, like, doing its Slowly thing. Slowly sort of moving about, yeah. And 
because it'd be so slow as a real snail, it'd be almost real time to a D and D combat. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting idea. I mean, to to be honest, I've I've kept sort of like water snails and whatever as pets when I was younger, and like you say, I don't think it'd really bother bother a snail if you put it on the table. And Give it a bit of beer and drop it back in the garden after. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to be honest, it's probably, like you said, roughly about the right scale, give or mm-hmm. take a little bit. And like I said, they move so ridiculously slowly anyway that you could just be like, oh, yeah, okay, wherever it moves, that, that that's where it is, where it's on its turn. So, like I said, I think it'd sort of work quite well. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea. Um, one of the other things I liked about it is in the... In the fiend folio and a couple of the other bits like uh, uh, the monstrous compendia it specifically says it's a silicon based life form now mm-hmm. I found it a little bit weird at first that they specifically mention that because obviously we know that like actual snails aren't silicon based life forms mm-hmm. because they're real <laughs> and um, it seems odd that they just sort of throw that in as like a throwaway little thing and it's never mentioned again. Now, obviously, they've expanded on that when they say, oh, it's from the elemental plane of Earth. That's probably why it's a silicon-based <laughs> creature. But it made me think that, like, it's just like an incongruous little detail that they've thrown in there. And it made me think of the old um, Horta out of I was going to say, Star it's Trek. probably just a reference to the Horta. Yeah, but it made me think about that because <laughs> that's one of the most, like, famous sort of, like, sci-fi examples of, like, a silicon-based life form that I know of. And again, it's... It's like a slow-moving creature that is potentially monstrous and very dangerous, but at the end of the day, they find out it's just trying to protect its young. It's not actually mm-hmm. murder of murderous intent, mm-hmm. So, which, like you say, fits very well with the, the flaos now because it's not overtly aggressive unless it perceives it's being threatened, and then it just lashes out. And w- once you withdraw out of like the range of its senses, it just sort of goes, all right, that's how I dealt with, and it carries on doing what well, it's doing. That would be the big difference if you're looking at them as two potential creatures. Obviously, the Horta, she's very, very intelligent. Yes, yeah. Whereas these are just your standard rampaging yeah. mob and or garden snail. Yeah, according to 5th edition, the poor old Flower Snail's got Intelligence 3. <laughs> so we're not going to see any sort of genius, like, Horta-level, like, Flower Snails. However, I don't think it's going to be my melding with Spock anytime soon. However, I think it'd be potentially interesting. I mean, obviously these stats in there, they can be altered as you need to fit your game. Mm-hmm. Like, you could increase the, the intelligence of the Flower Snail without altering any of the other stats. Mm-hmm. You can still say it has pretty much the same behavioural patterns. And I think it'd be really interesting to do like a fantasy version of like the episode with like the hauter in, <laughs> you know, like um, like the work well, yeah, the, like the mind guy calls you in and he's like, oh, there's this like terrible creature that's like blinded all my man and it's it's attacking all my man. So like you t- you turn up, you start investigating, and then you find out that the miners came across like these like snail eggs or whatever, mm-hmm. and like destroyed them or like took them away, and that's why the flail snails like going mental, and then. If you discover that, it, again, it's all these lovely sort of like moral dilemmas where it's like, it, I mean, obviously, if you've got murder hobos, they're just going to romp in, kill the monster, and be like, give me that XP. But if you if you've got like a slightly more new, well, that's fine. If you, if you love that, that's grand. Crack on. But if you've got slightly more like nuanced players, when they find that out, they're going to be like, well, what do we do now? Do we just go and wipe it out when like all it is is like a mother in inverted commas, like mm. protecting its young and like who's the real bad guys because yeah it's probably killed some people but 
if the sort of mine guys hadn't like stolen its eggs, that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, mm. wh- where do you sort of draw the lines and where are your boundaries in terms of things like that? So I think that could be really interesting. And it would potentially be a, a way of, like, using the flower snail for more than just, like, oh, you're in a dungeon, you see the, you, there's loads of glass everywhere. Oh, no, here comes the flail snail. And sort of, like, just having it as, like, a wacky sort of comedic monster in a game. See, similarly, I could see it being quite a useful underdark wandering monster. Yeah. If you're doing that sort of a campaign, because it's not particularly intelligent... It's not going to be like a massive tangent on your adventure to go and deal with this particular like threat. Yeah. And if you don't want to deal with this particular threat... You, you can just leave it alone. Yeah, you can just leave it alone because it's just a big-ass snail wandering about eating rocks. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing I did want to mention, which isn't directly related to the the flower snail, mm-hmm. is um, there's a the sort of I suppose I don't know whether you'd call it a subgenre of games, but there was this idea that um, I know uh, a famous OSR writer Jeff Reance talks about on his mm-hmm. blog. I don't know whether he invented it. So again, apologies, internet, if he invented it or if he didn't invent it. But there was this, they called this idea um, the sort of flail snails conventions. And being in that sort of vein right. of, oh, it's got to be an acronym, they said, oh, it's free location and inclusion laws supporting new and interesting leisure situations, flail snails. And the idea was, is it was a series of like articles or rules that people could follow and it meant that you to run their games and it meant that you could take your character from one game drop it into another game oh right yeah yeah and they basically had like a series of like charts which if you were like a really powerful character into like a lower level game you'd roll on some of these charts and you'd get like a few like flaws and little sort of like challenges that make it a bit more difficult for you or if you were like low powered in a high powered game, the reverse would be the case. You'd get a couple of rolls on these tables to like boost you up a bit. And the idea was, once your PC died in any game, you couldn't use it in any other flail snails game. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know how long it actually ran for. I know there was a Discord community for it at one point, and I, I quite like the idea of sort of people just being able to take the character and use it in a game. Especially since we know that like D and D was designed to be like more sort of like tournament friendly, and I think it's a great thing that you could just like take one character port it into another game i think that's a really cool thing and i think at the time when they did it i mean open games and stuff like that are more common now Mm. i think sort of at the time they did it i was trying to find the date of this post so we're talking 2011 ish around about that time i don't think these sort of like open games where you could bring in other characters were quite so common Mm. So I think that was a really cool thing to do. And like I say, I don't know it's any tangentially related, but they did call it flail snail, so I'm going to like slip it in while the big guys munching <laughs> lettuce in the garden. Okay, so that's been our episode about the flail snail. We hope you've enjoyed it and you've got something out of it. If you want to get in touch with us, maybe you've got some ideas for future episodes, or maybe you want to comment on this or any others we've done, you can leave us a voicemail message using SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description of this show. Or you can send us an email to rddrpg 
podcast at gmail.com. Until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and keep gaming. Bye.